When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Aristocrats at Sea edition. It's Wednesday, May 11th, 2022. On today's show, the French movie Happening could not be more urgently timely. It's what everyone says about it and should say about it. It's a harrowing portrait of a young woman in France in the early 60s trying to secure an abortion. It's based on the autobiographical novel by Annie Ernaux. We'll be joined by Slate's own Susan Matthews, host of the upcoming season of Slow Burn, And then Our Flag Means Death is a wild queering of the pirate genre. The HBO comedy is suffused throughout with the sensibility of producer, director, and co-star Taika Waititi. And finally, the age-old question. Here it is again. Kim Kardashian, apotheosis or travesty? The question finds itself refreshed by (laughs) Kim wearing an iconic dress of Marilyn Monroe's to the Met Gala. We'll be joined by the Gabfest's sartorial conscience herself, Julia Turner. But uh, in the meantime, joining me today is Heather Schwedell, Slate staff writer. Hey, Heather. Hi, Steve. And, of course, Dan Coyce is a writer at Slate. He's just released the first episode of The Martin Chronicles, a podcast about Martin Amos with Jason Zinneman and Parol Segal. Uh, Dan, welcome back. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I... Uh, I'm not going to be constrained by the copy you sent me about your uh, bio, good as it is. You're also writing a novel. Uh, that's true. It comes out in January. It's called Vintage Contemporaries. Uh, apparently, all I think about now are the literary figures and trends <laughs> of the 80s and 90s. Uh, I am incredibly eager to um, read and uh, talk about that book. Um, in the meantime, I sound different. I may have COVID, uh, but I'm isolated and at home, and why not? Let's make a show. We good? Let's turn that negative into a positive. <laughs> <laughs> Frown upside down. Yeah, that's my middle name. All right, let's go. All right, well, in the new French movie Happening, Anne is a young woman from a working class family. She shows immense literary and intellectual promise at school. She's also, I think it's fair to say, depicted as sexually free relative to her culture. It's 1963 in a very Catholic France. Uh, a very sexually unfree society as depicted in the film in which unwed pregnancy is treated as a fatal moral lapse and abortion is still criminalized. Anne understands her fate to have the child suffer internal exile anyway and relinquish her promise and she rejects her fate. Anne is played by Anna Maria Vartolome. She's a quiet, ravishing, insolent, slightly insolent girl who must make a journey through a kind of underworld to reclaim her autonomy and her own existence. The movie is a horror show. It depicts what a society without this right looks like. For women, it's a totalitarian nightmare in which everyone is afraid and everyone potentially is forced to live as a hypocrite and or a snitch. The movie is adapted by Audrey Dewan. All right, let's listen to a clip. Now, the movie's a French film. It's entirely in French. I assume uh, I'm not francophonic. We don't assume you are. We'd like to just conveys something of the tone of the film. Um, Why don't we listen to a short clip uh, that features the film's score. It's a scene in which Anne's at the library flipping through books about pregnancy. 
Well, we're joined by Susan Matthews. She's Slate's news director. She's also host of the upcoming season of the Slow Burn podcast. Uh, Susan, welcome to the show. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. Uh, This season's uh, forthcoming Slow Burn could not be more apposite. It's about the run-up to uh, the Roe v. Wade court decision in 1973. Um, Let's let's start with the movie and then broaden out maybe to that. Um, many movies, as Dana Stevens pointed out in her review, are about having an abortion. And as she says, usually in their varying ways, they're buddy movies of one kind or another. This is very different. This is a portrait of almost total isolation. Um, what'd you make of it? I mean, it was a very intense experience to watch this, uh, movie after what happened last week, even for me as a person who has been living in this topic for, I can't even tell you how many months now, um, and I agreed a lot with what Dana said about the the way that it conveyed that feeling of isolation and responsibility and self determination. Uh, I I thought was was quite moving, and I wasn't exactly expecting how intense it got at the end. But I also think that that was something that kind of dramatically separates it from from a lot of movies that take on this topic. Mm. Dan, if there's a shot, a single shot in this movie that doesn't feature Anne, I don't really remember it. It's it's tightly, intimately filmed. It's very hush, as many French films are. They seem to be about the human face and the um, what's said when people are silent or being implied when people are silent. Um, in another sense, it's a, it's a horror film. I mean, I do not mean that glibly. It is, as Susan says, extremely hard to watch. What did you take away from the experience? Yeah, there are definitely scenes, um, you know, where I felt I had to cover my eyes and then where I reprimanded myself for covering my eyes because at this exact moment in time, that seems like the wrong response. But boy, did I want to cover my eyes nonetheless. And and that's part of the argument that the film is making, too. You know, the one particular scene, um, a scene in which she does attempt to get an abortion with a local abortionist. Um, in her town, she lives in Anglem, um, is shot in like one basically long four and a half minute take the entire thing. And that's an argument by a director that if a person cannot remove themselves from the situation the way Anne cannot, we as viewers owe it to her to watch the whole time. And that's a difficult thing to do. Um, at the same time, I was really taken with the way that this movie complicated her situation, I mean, it very rigorously isolates her, as Dana said. You know, she has a, her best friends who are, you know, also for their time somewhat open about sexuality, even if they, even if, you know, one of them is a, a self professed virgin flirt. You know, when she tells them, when she finally reveals to them that she's pregnant, they abandon her uh, for the most part. Um, every time she asks for help from anyone, she's rebuffed. Uh, a male classmate who she tells about it immediately puts the moves on her, tells her, oh, well, we should have sex now because now it's safe because you're pregnant. Um, but I was also, you know, fascinated by the way the movie complicates it a little bit and does things with this story 
that I think no American version of the story would. You talked about the hushedness of it being particularly French. The stuff that seemed particularly French about it to me, for example, were, you know, the the moment that it gives her to actually enjoy sex with mm. the hunky mm-hmm. local firemen in the midst of this crisis. Um, or the the firm belief that the movie holds that even a young person's vague sense that maybe they want to be a writer someday is a future that's totally worth protecting. That seemed like the parts, the, the versions of the story that you wouldn't necessarily see in an American version of this, that that this life of the mind that she is so desperate to claim and that, that she loses during the period that she's pregnant um, is in particular a life worth protecting. Heather, this movie presents a curious challenge. It's it's built around a message that is meant to hit the viewer like a kind of a fist. Um, and it does. And um, and I think we should be grateful for the movie smacking us out of whatever complacency we could possibly have left about this subject. Um, that makes it hard to judge as a movie, doesn't it? Yes, I think it does. Uh- there are parts that are very hard to watch. So I was thinking about whether I like this movie. And I have to say, I don't think I want to watch it again, <laughs> or I wouldn't want to. It it was just to um, the body horror, e- even when you're not seeing things specifically, just the, the look of anguish on this person's face as um, she's trying to... Um, and her own pregnancy, that scene was just so hard to watch. So um, it does make it hard to judge. I, I think it made me think about my relationship with movies in general. Do I? What is it about a movie being hard to watch, even if valuable, that makes me think, I'm not sure what to do with this? So... That has made me think of something that I've been experiencing in this past week so extremely, which is there's this feeling that you get as somebody who is trying to make something that is creative or that that means something that taps into the human experience in some way where you don't just want people to say, oh, this is important, like this is urgent, this is timely, this is on the nose. And when I've I've been living with the characters in my show and trying to think of them as complete humans who who brush up against this subject and interact with it. And I think that that's one of the reasons why the way that Dan was explaining the specific Frenchness of the film, that was something that I appreciated here so much is that Anne was not a woman who had to get an abortion. Anne was a woman with goals. And I felt that that was the dominant thing that like her grit and determination and the reason why she was doing it felt so clear to me. And I think helped transcend that issue of this is a film that we all have to suffer through because we have to prove that this is important. Um, Like it it conveyed the why a bit for me. Yeah. And I would add to that very quickly. I mean, it's also um, it's also in its way a buildings roman, right? The old novel that tells the story of typically young man of literary promise who has to mature in some, you know, sort of uh, internally self-developing way in order to become the person who could write the book that you've just read, right? And she's a young woman of that kind of literary promise who, in order to 
retain her promising future as her own, which her own talents have made a kind of expectation and right for her. Uh, she has to go through a different struggle, an external struggle against a you know pervasively sexually um, hypocritical and um, patriarchal society uh, in order to come out the person who can write the book. This is based on a memoir. It is in some sense a buildings roman, but about a a you know it transcended whatever status it may or may not have as an issue movie by a lot. I thought it was really about what it's like to not already be in all of the pre-existing privileged categories, i.e. white, male, uh, ostensibly heterosexual, um, middle class, or whatever, um, so that your struggle is purely an internal, spiritual, or aesthetic one. It says, no, actually, other people want that fate, too. They want the right to tell their own story and in a literary format, but their struggle is against, you know, highly, highly external um, forces of of denial and suppression. I thought that made it both things at once. And that's why I think it's a beautiful, beautifully realized film in addition to a necessary kick in the teeth. One moment in the film that really surprised me the most, I kind of, you know, going into it, kind of what, what you're going to see. And the thing that surprised me there is that the, the film starts not with the sex that leads to the pregnancy, Um, But you kind of get the sense that it might because like I think in the very beginning they're all getting ready to go out and it's only later when she, you know, pulls down her underwear and writes in her journal like still nothing exclamation mark. I actually thought that that was kind of one of the absolutely most profound moments of of the whole movie. And the reason why is because it illustrates something that I think every single woman has experienced in their life that hasn't necessarily had the the extreme trauma that Anne goes through later in that movie. And the reason for that is because one of the things that I've been doing when I've been interviewing women who, you know, were alive and, and sexually active in many cases before Roe is I've asked them all if they've had an experience with abortion, with illegal abortion, with legal abortion. And so many of them have said, no, I haven't I haven't had to have an abortion, but every single person has said every single woman has said, but there was a moment where I thought that I might need to think about it. And so it was that moment where she, where you're not sure what has happened to her yet that I thought was just so profoundly relatable. All right, Susan, before we go, give us just a little a little teaser, a little preview of the upcoming season of Slow Burn. Sure. The episode I'm working on today is about Shirley Wheeler. And I just want to note for uh, listeners, if you look uh, at the slow burn art, the woman in the photo now, uh, that is Shirley Wheeler. And there's something very defiant about that photograph that I love. She is the first woman to ever be convicted of manslaughter for getting an abortion. And we are telling her story in the first episode. I think it has a lot of uh, resonance with what we're worried about, what might happen, um, you know, after this June. Uh, All right. Well, Susan Matthews is uh, Slate's news director. She's the host of the upcoming season of Slow Burn, which clearly we should all listen to. We'll have you back uh, when that drops on June 1st. Thanks so much. And feel better, Steve. (laughs) Ah, Thank you. Take care. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on all your favorite products at Apple, 
2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. All right. Before we go any further, this is typically where we talk business. Uh, We don't have Dana, but we do have Dan. Dan, what do you got? Thank you, Steve. Our only item of business today is to tell you about our Slate Plus segment. This week, we're going to answer a question from a listener named Hannah. Hannah writes, Hey, Slate Culture Gab Fest. My question is, what movies, TV shows, books, or culture helped you imagine or shape your idea of people in their 40s or 50s? When I was young, I fantasized about living lives like the people in Reality Bites, Walking and Talking, or TV shows like Friends. I feel like I do not have the same cultural models for being an adult in my 40s or 50s. That's a great question. We have a lot of great answers for Hannah about culture that does teach us a little bit about how it doesn't necessarily suck to be over the age of 40. If you're a Slate Plus member, you can look forward to hearing those answers later in the show. If you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Members get ad-free podcasts and lots of bonus content, like, for example, the Slate Plus segment I just mentioned. You'll also get to hear members-only programming on other Slate shows like Slow Burn and the Political Gab Fest. Plus, members get unlimited access to all the great writing on Slate.com. You'll never hit a paywall if you're a Slate Plus member. I should also mention, of course, you'll be supporting our work and the work of our brilliant colleagues like, for example, Susan Matthews, who you already heard from on the show. These memberships are really important for Slate, so please sign up today at Slate.com slash Culture Plus. One more time, that's Slate.com slash Culture Plus. Okay, back to you, Steve. All right. The new comedy on HBO, Our Flag Means Death, stars Reese Darby as Steed Bonnet, a pampered 18th century English aristocrat who decides to chuck his cushy life and head to the high seas. There he heads up a merry band of misfits, uh, and that sets up early and often a running joke of Captain Bonnet's attempt to cure himself of foppishness. He's trying to learn to be ruthless, violent, nomadic, uh, as counterposed with his attempt to soften and civilize his crew by encouraging them to share their feelings and reading them bedtime stories. The show is just filled with all kinds of strange and kind of wonderful whimsy. Uh, It also stars Taika Waititi. He's Blackbeard in this. He produces and directs. And amply on display here is his method, uh, as we saw in Jojo Rabbit and What We Do in the Shadows, to totally turn traditional masculinity on its head. Let's, uh, Let's listen to a clip. And we're about to hear Captain Bonnet uh, as he tries to prove that he's a, a tough, a manly leader. Now listen up. I gather some of you feel as though we're not real pirates. Well, here's the deal, buckos. We have our eyes on a ship. A big one. That's right, a whopper. And we're going to catch up with it forthwith and kick its ass. So, any questions? Is it really a big ship this time? Yes, I just said it was... I'm not asking you, I'm asking him. She is quite impressive, I. But can we light it on fire? I'd be disappointed if we didn't. Yes! Yes. All right. (laughs) To death we go, to certain death we go. Our one hope being that a certain death ain't slow. We unsheath our swords and sharpen up our knives and head full sail toward the ending of our lives. Well, I think that worked well. Aye, they do seem less inclined to murder you, Captain. Uh, The singing that you hear is uh, the actor Joel Fry plays one of the pirates and he's got some kind of a 
you know, late Renaissance musical instrument, and he sings these <laughs> hilariously inapt songs to the crew. Uh, Dan, this is a this is a strong mix of uh, and maybe unusual mix of flavors. How did it How did it strike you? Uh, well, it starts in a very familiar mode to people who have you know followed Taika Waititi's career. It's basically what we do in the shadows, but with pirates, right? It's a very familiar, familiar cultural trope, something we've seen in a million, like, you know, boys stories and, uh, and YA novels, but as performed by incompetence, right? The vampires and what we do in the shadows are actually quite bad at being vampires. These pirates are, are totally incompetent at being pirates. That is the charm. That is the whimsy. And the, the whimsy is nearly on overload in the first episode or two of this show. Um, but as you say, there's a real mix of things happening in here because the show evolves over the course of its 10 episodes into something totally different, um, into not to spoil too much, into a kind of romance um, that I found quite surprising and delightful. And that, I think, is where the show ascends to a point a little more interesting than a lot of Taika's recent work. Um, its willingness to transform itself on the fly, which seems less um, due to YTT and more due to the creator, David Jenkins, whose uh, brainchild this series is and who wrote most of the episodes uh, that, that make up this first season. Um, I really liked it a lot, and I liked it despite feeling that the very first episode uh, felt just a tiny bit like, oh, I've seen this uh, from Taika about 100 times before, because it really veers right in a way I didn't expect at all. Hmm. Um, Heather, I'm curious, there's a lot to get through before you get to this turning point that most critics have identified. I think it's episode four, if I'm not mistaken, where Blackbeard appears uh, as played by uh, YTT. What uh, what do you make of it? I had a really hard time getting into this. I I was excited for it. I've um, I've started what we do in the shadows and found it funny. And um, but I, I just thought this was kind of like well, okay, like amusing. But you know, I the first episode I was not excited about, and really the next few either. I I really think I would not have kept watching had I not read, you know, it gets good. <laughs> so I, it, it would be great if it could have gotten good right away. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, having watched four or five episodes, I'm, I'm sure that the last half of the season is as great as I've read, but I kind of felt like, I, you know, I've kind of seen this before. I don't think this is the, the best version of it, this this sort of gang of incompetence, um, you know, and the, the historical setting. Um, I don't know. I, I just wasn't into it. So and I, I feel bad about that because it, it's such a sensation and everything. Yeah, Dan, I what here's what surprises me is, first of all, how how huge a hit it's been, how by and large critically acclaimed it's been. And then on first encounter with the show, I had almost a skin reaction to it. I said, this is just brutally unfunny. And it um, I kind of found myself slogging through it. And uh, I, stuck, I stuck it out through three episodes and didn't make it to the turning point because I 
think that that's a huge ask. Is that common to have 40% of the show go by before you get to the defining, you know, I mean, not just sort of a reveal or a, or a plot point or, 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 you know, whatever. It's not a twist. It's like the whole, it's what the show is. It's the show. And it does feel as though two very large creative talents maybe wrestled with one another amicably or otherwise about what the nature of the show is or should be. And one kind of got his way for the tone and the setup and the other got his way for the, you know, heart and meat of it in some sense. Um, I think that's a huge ask in the age of streaming uh, 10 episodes, but you're going to have to get four to get to the, the beating heart of it. I couldn't, I have to confess, I found it so aggressively overplayed and unfunny. I couldn't get there. I just think that the streaming question is interesting because if we think about some, you know, really acclaimed shows from the past, you know, 20 years, you look at season one of The Office was not that great and we gave it time to to get good. Mm-hmm. So this show, you know, it if it only takes a few episodes to get good, that's great. But we're our metabolisms are so different now that that it it seems like well I have to watch three episodes for for it to get good or it seems like maybe it will be better if if the show hasn't hasn't been renewed for a second season yet but if it goes on to have this great second season then maybe people want to will want to watch or people like us who <laughs> aren't that into mm-hmm. it um and and go back and and like appreciate it more but it, it's it's just an interesting question of today's tv model yeah now dan is the person who really stuck with it i I presume all the way or most of the way through i i'd love to talk to you about many people watched this not knowing whether the show would have the courage of its apparent convictions that it was going to you know i I read one description is possibly kind of queer bait the reader with this idea that uh, a fully realized uh, gay relationship might be at the heart of it, but might not be. And they might pull that away. They might hint at it. They might have their cake and eat it too. But, uh, and that actually created, it sounds like an enormous amount of suspense. What, what precisely is this relationship? Is it going to remain only subtly hinted at, uh, sort of beneath the surface, subtextual, or are they going to really have the courage to, to go there? And it sounds as though, a, that that worked as a, as a suspenseful device, so maybe the choice actually to front load with whimsy and back load with heart or feeling wasn't such a bad one, and B, it does sound as though it has the courage of its convictions, not to give anything away. It really does, and, the, and I would say that basically the turning point is, it's actually really episode five, honestly, where you finally begin to see, oh, uh, this is a show about a potential love affair between these two guys, these two main characters. I mean, I don't I feel like, I feel like in this case, quasi spoiling it is in fact not a disservice to the listener because this is what the show is leading up to. And if you go into it, knowing that this is what it's leading up to, I think you're more likely to make it this far, but the, the show is a romance between Steve Bonnet and Blackbeard. It's about their burgeoning relationship, first their friendship, and then a, 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 a romantic connection. And in episode five, they have their first sort of romantic comedy moment of real connection in front of a beautiful full moon, of, you know, on the sea that happens after a, a big comic conflagration that has to do with their differing social statuses with Blackbeard's 
roughness, but desire to become an aristocrat and Steed Bonnet's knowledge of the aristocracy and his wish to actually give it all up in favor of being a pirate. Um, and it does have the courage of its convictions. And I think people have really connected to it for a couple of reasons. And one is simply that it, the show reminded me as I was watching it of two recurrent complaints that I often see on social media. Um, from people who are fans of particular genres of literature, TV, movies, etc. One is people um, begging creators of queer stories to make a story that isn't just teen boys finding their first love. Like, mm -hmm. those are great, but that's like 80% of, of queer media at this point is adorable stories of teen boys finding their first love. And then the other, which was made most recently, just a couple days ago, by beloved former Thirst Aid Kit host Nicole Perkins, is for love stories, romances featuring people over 35, featuring people who are not like young and beautiful, but who are who have some miles on them. And as it happens, Our Flag Means Death hits both of those spots. It fills both of those very unfilled niches at once. Uh, in a way that is surprising and satisfying uh, and and often, I think, because I have a high, higher tolerance for YTT and whimsy than you guys, often also quite funny. Heather, I have to say, listening to Dan Coyce on this podcast, I'm going to return to this, this show and watch it till the final episode. What about you? Are you convinced? Hmm. I'm, I'm really <laughs> not sure. <laughs> Um, I do think I want to watch it. I tend to be a completist. and I, I mean, you are Slate's romantic comedy guru, <laughs> so I really want to know what you think of it. Yeah, well, I think one point you made, um, and, and this was also um, uh, sort of spoken about in some of the reading we did for this show, is now when when you watch a romantic comedy um between a, you know a man and a woman um it's so telegraphed like you know if you see a certain glance you know oh it's on so right. it it's interesting that in a a queer uh love story after so many years of of queer baiting or or sort of um these shows and movies not being willing to go there that it becomes a a different sort of suspense of, you know, is this actually going to happen? And th that does add an interesting element to it that that I would like to see more. And, you know, there are also other um, relationships, uh, queer relationships. So um, obviously, as as a romance rom-com person, um, you know, there are other stories I don't know what happens with, too. So, yeah, maybe I do need to watch the rest. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, the show is Our Flag Means Death. It's on HBO. Uh, Heather and I wobbled on it. Um, Dan convinced me. Why don't you check it out and shoot us an email? All right. Moving on. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? 
Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right. Well, in 1962, Marilyn Monroe sang a breathless happy birthday to John F. Kennedy, her paramour and our president. The dress she was wearing has been preserved. It was worn recently to the Met Gala by none other than Kim Kardashian. Uh, This uh, outraged some people, uh, preservationists and uh, various others. Before we get to that, though, why don't we listen to Kim herself uh, describe what it was like to get into the dress? I had this idea to to put it on and try it on and then they came with like armed guards and gloves and I tried it on and it didn't fit me and so I looked at them and I said give me like three weeks and I I had to lose 16 pounds down today to to be able to fit this but I it was such a challenge it was like a roll right I was determined yeah I was determined to fit it put your mind to something there's no you were like eating tomatoes I don't think they believe me I don't think they believe that I was going to do it Mm, okay well we're joined by uh Julia I hope you're okay with this I described you up top as uh as our sartorial conscience here on the Slate Culture Gap Fest. Ooh, love it. Going to make business cards. Uh, awesome. You're willing to wear it. I love it. Um, well, uh, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for holding down the fort this week and uh, having me on for breaking culture fashion news. <laughs> Fun all around. Actually, all right, well, old, you- old culture fashion news that we are excited to still talk about <laughs> because <laughs> we are so passionate about it. And by we, I mean me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Well, uh, let your uh, take your passion and uh, and make it happen. Tell me about why this is uh, interesting to to us. Well, I mean, what seems most interesting off of that clip, I will have to acknowledge, is just like the demented culture <laughs> in which we um, like award women for their hustle and hard work for attempting to drop sixteen pounds in three weeks through a diet of tomatoes, like. Just heads up that that is bullshit and probably more fundamental bullshit that fucks up more women and people in this world than anything that Kim did to the dress. So just stipulated. But when I heard this news, I was incredulous because my I, I spent uh, a year in college interning at a costume and textile department at the RISD Museum, which was an incredible job, such a privilege, so cool to be in this like b- beautiful temperature controlled underground layer that was basically like a massive closet with these rolling library shelves where they had everything from swaths of linen from the Valley of the Kings to like weird little pointy curly shoes from the 1600s to like fabulous dresses from the 40s. Um, And I definitely was not allowed to even fucking touch a thread the whole summer. And even the two women who ran it, the curators, like, you know, tried to touch the garments as little as possible, did so with gloves on, like brought them out once to assess what the show would be, put them away, did all their preparation, brought them back out to install. Like nobody's 
you know, it wasn't like every afternoon at four for the coffee break. We were like, let's try on the stuff from the <laughs> 1870s today. Like, <laughs> it's just like not what you do. This gala, this Met Gala, is to raise money for the Costume Institute, which is an institution like devoted to the preservation of historic garments, right? Um, so the whole thing seemed insane. And two wonderful reporters on our team at the LA Times, Nardine Saad and Deb Venkin, um, you know, had considered one of their editors had considered assigning something in the morning and decided who else was interested in this crazy dress thing. And then I was like, what's going on with this crazy dress thing? And they were like, you know what, if we're all interested, let's let's go check it out and see what happened. And um, they reported a really interesting thorough story that revealed what had happened, which is that this dress is not owned by a museum. It is owned by Ripley's Believe It or Not, which is sort of a Madame Tussaud type non-curatorial entertainment company um, that, you know, seemingly does not abide by the curatorial practices of costume historians, which their reporting taught me um, revealed that, like, it's actually only since the 1980s or 90s that curators have widely agreed that allowing people to wear important historic dress uh, is to be avoided because it can damage the gardens, the garments, and it's just like not something people do. Um, so, you know, <laughs> I was horrified. They were horrified. What I'm interested to, uh, you know, I also like admire Kim's hustle, like the task of dressing for the Met Gala, I think is all about like having the most ambitious, crazy idea and like points, right? Like this is a good idea separate from that for how to like make a splash and have a good story at the Met Gala about what your look is. Um, but so am I alone? This is my question. Was my brain broken by my summer with the curators? And should there in fact be a prohibition on historic garments? Or is it like, why not? Museum didn't buy it. Fair market, totally allowed. Go for it, Kim. Drop those pounds. Like use that binder clip. Wear a stole to hide the part where it doesn't zip. Damage some some sequins in souffle, go for it. Like, am I crazy is my question to you. I think not having um, spent a summer working um, <laughs> with historic garments, my initial reaction was not, that's insane. How dare she? But when I saw the reporting about fashion archivists and historians not being happy with this, I wasn't surprised at, at first I was like oh of course I mean they they hate everything killjoys Kim, Kim does um <laughs> right. they're gonna find a way to criticize her um and I think having read about it more no she had should not have been allowed to wear this but also who could have stopped her I think that's sort of the Ripley's believe it or not aspect of it is really interesting so uh, they bought this dress for $4.8 million um, a few years ago, and they have it in one of their um, quote-unquote museums that are not actually museums. And, you know, it it does make sense. You know, they bought it to get attention, so it does make sense that they would lend it out to her. I, I guess there's some someone along the way, I guess, should have stopped this. But it, it's interesting to me to know that actually there are no real rules to stop this. Um, I One other thing, though, is I, I'm going to sound dumb saying this, but is this that famous address? Did you guys know about this dress? 
Oh, I am seconding you on that so hard. What? Okay, sorry. Holy shit. I mean, it's it's like how how weirdly self-serious we've gotten around the history of kind of I don't know, like I, I don't know pop culture. I mean, I'm one to talk. I host this fucking podcast, but still it's it's like historic. Is this really that historic? This kind of peculiar moment that I mean, I guess the way I'd put it, Dan, is are are we dealing with a a travesty or a total continuity, right? That Monroe hypersexualizing herself to a man who virtually did nothing but, I mean, abuse might be strong, but he did not treat her with much respect. I mean, treated her as sexually instrumental, right? And singing that song it's like why is that a historical moment i mean i think there's a reason why like this thing is not in the smithsonian but in ripley's believe it or not you know and so i i just i i think if this there's some kind of a continuity between that moment and the kind of you know attention economy that's elevated of all people kim kardashian to you know the the, the pinnacle uh, oh, absolutely. There's yeah. pure continuity. This is the tackiest of artifacts <laughs> from one of the tackiest moments in American history. And it absolutely deserves to be worn again at a modern day celebration of the gauche, right? That is the the <laughs> ideal use for this garment is to be worn again at the Met Gala in the year 2022. Far better that for it to serve that purpose than for it to be in a museum or, you know, be it's certainly the Smithsonian wouldn't touch it with a 10 foot pole for the exact reasons you say. Um, I, I love this and I love that she wore it. I mean, the, yes, as you, as stipulated Julia, the actual um, demented uh, convolution she claims to have gone through to do it represent everything wrong with American society. But the fact that she wore it represents everything right with uh, the downfall and decline of American society and the way it provides incredible, complicated eye candy for the rest of us to enjoy as society goes to shit. Oh, my God. Nero <laughs> with this fucking fiddle. Oh, I, holy shit. How did we get there? Oh, man. What a nihilist take. I mean, I guess, <laughs> like, yes, I align myself with the killjoys in this, if not in all things. But what part of what it has made me think about and part of why I thought it was worth talking about a week later is like, it was interesting to work in a costume and like to think about costume and textile history. And I think probably a related um, set of curatorial work is like the furniture rooms, you know, when you go to a museum and it's like fancy little chairs with gold on the edges, right? Like those are not my favorite rooms as a kid. Um, they like are my favorite rooms as a grown up, probably. <laughs> but um, you know, this this type of work that is about preserving artifacts that are decorative, fundamentally decorative objects, right? Not intended as like capital A art. Um, and like, what is that kind of academic work about? Uh, and how important is it? I mean, I hear you about the tackiness as well, but the writer Emma, Emma Forrest um posted an observation on Instagram that I thought was really astute, which is that part of what seems so jarring about the moment is that what was interesting about Marilyn Monroe and tragic about her at that moment was just that she was this American avatar of vulnerability. Like she was so raw. She Mm -hmm. was so tender. She, you know, she wore this at a very dark time in her life before she was totally without agency at that (laughs) moment. Met a dark end. 
And like Kim Kardashian, God bless her, is like the absolute opposite of vulnerable. Like, in fact, they are incredibly different avatars of femininity, incredibly different women. Um, and, you know, I like it is hard to tell how much the like power and potency and seeming invulnerability of Kim Kardashian is in fact like a hard carapace constructed to preserve selfhood in a world where her mother has been like farming her out and building her career her whole life. And perhaps there is some marshmallowy vulnerable core at the center of it, desperately snarfing tomatoes. But like the supposed consonance between these two women is actually really discordant. And I thought just that point about vulnerability was really interesting. Um, But I don't know. I mean, I guess just the bigger question I have for you guys, like, I think it's fascinating to preserve these kind of decorative objects that are not capital A art that don't have the machismo of like the male ego pronouncing on the world for the most part. Yes, there is some art made by women in museums, but it's a little scanty. Um, And the kind of ways in which the beauty of the world and the craft and technique of human history um, is applied towards objects for home and body is a place where art for women and often art by women exists. And so there's a part of me that feels like, fuck that, about sneering at the idea that preserving that art and artistry uh, is lame. I am curious, first of all, uh, I hope that future generations will argue about someone wearing the constructed hard carapace of Kim Kardashian to a Met Gala. That's what Uh, I'll wear if I ever go. Yeah. Um, But also, I don't think that what I that what I sneer at is the idea of recognizing these objects. But, you know, you mentioned the rooms of decorative arts in various museums, which as, as many parents know, are often the, the least favorite rooms of their kids. And maybe I'll describe to my kids the process of becoming an adult, the the process of learning to enjoy those rooms, (laughs) but those items aren't merely decorative. And this dress isn't merely decorative. Those chairs and chaise longs and whatever, and this dress were also functional in a way that visual art is not explicitly functional. And so what I always view as the real tragedy of those rooms with that are filled with furniture and stuff is that you fucking can't sit on it. I think you should sit on it. And <laughs> they're extremely repairable. They're extremely – you can put sequins back on this dress. You can – you can sew up a seam that splits on a chaise long. What about the delicate souffle fabric, Dan? But continue. <laughs> but I just mean, if, if the way to recognize these objects is not to merely observe them under glass, but to utilize them in some way that is similar, but but inevitably different because we live in a different era than the way they were utilized at the time. And so that is what is frustrating to me about this, the idea that this Uh, artifact, which is also not only an artifact, but an object that was used for specific purposes should no longer ever be used for those purposes whatsoever. That seems like a bummer to me. And I recognize that there's a conflict between the need that you have on a historical basis for this thing to be available for people to see for as long as humanly possible until the heat death of the universe or until Orlando burns. But I also think how much more worthwhile would it be for the experience of interacting with these kinds of objects to be more in the, you see Kim Kardashian wearing it at the Met Gala mold than in the, it's in a rack in a basement where only curators can see it and no one's allowed to touch it. Mm -hmm. 
All right, you're going to draw that line somewhere, though. You're not going to have, like, the top hat Lincoln was wearing at the Booth Theater, you know, parade. I want to fucking wear that to prom. All right, I can't give Dan Goyce the last word here. Heather, you wrote the article about this. Where'd you come out? I think I'm with Julia in that... we need these garments need to be protected. I mean, there was so much written in um, in these pieces about how just like a bead of sweat could could damage the integrity of the dress. Um, so I I think I sort of like the argument that they should be worn. We should be sitting on those couches, but it it's just not realistic. <laughs> um, and I hope Ripley's is, you know, walking a fine line in that they want to protect this dress enough for it to still be valuable and for them to be able to display it. So I, they're not going to lend it out to just anyone. I think you have to be a Kim Kardashian. So I, I think even they realize that, okay, this, this was worth doing for us for this one stunt, but we can't be lending this dress out all the time. Mm, Okay. Well, Julia, up top, I didn't say you're the deputy managing editor of the LA Times. Thank you for taking time out of your busy day. This was really fun. This was cool. Thank you guys for indulging my interest in this topic and my interest in whether I'm completely fucking wrong about this topic. (laughs) Always a pleasure. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FT Weekend wherever you listen. Ah, right now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse. Dan, um, what do you have? I am endorsing a novel that came out in January that I think got somewhat overlooked, though it got a lot of good reviews. It's called Last Resort by Andrew Lipstein. It is a contemporary novel about a wannabe writer, in fact, a wannabe novelist, who stumbles on the story of a lifetime, turns it into the season's hot novel, and then is confronted with the results of the story that he took. It's a very funny, very inside baseball very contemporary novel about a very bad art friend. Um, I found it as totally entertaining as the big novel of last year on similar themes, which was The Plot by Jean Hanfkrellitz. But uh, the difference is that this one is actually believable. Uh, <laughs> and I absolutely loved it. It's, it's to- a total delight. I ate it up. Oh, very cool. Uh, Heather, what about you? I want to endorse a refrigerated dessert called Hershey's Colliders. Um, So I know refrigerated dessert sounds vague, and it is kind of hard to describe these. Um, I guess the thing they're most like is a pudding, and you can find them near the pudding in a grocery store, but they're not quite pudding. Um, So a collider consists of two parts. One part is this like pudding-like part, but it's better than pudding, in my opinion. The, The vanilla is sort of like a custard or soft serve ice cream. And then the other part is the topping, which can be something like Reese's or Kit Kat bits. So if you're familiar with Chobani Flip, a collider is sort of like that, but not yogurt. Um, They come in a bunch of varieties, but I would say the s'mores one is my favorite. Um, And I wanted to endorse these because I've never heard anyone else talk about them. So it's this uncanny thing where I'm curious, you know, 
am I the only one who loves the who loves these? And I'm slightly worried. Does that mean they're unpopular and are going to be discontinued? So I wanted to get the word out, um, but I also think they're just really good, and I'm yearning to find the community of fellow Hershey's Colliders lovers out there, if it exists. So please go buy a Hershey's Collider and tell me what you think. I'm absolutely oh. going to buy one. I'm looking at it now. I love Chobani flips, but often worry that they seem too healthy. So this seems like a great option for a person like me. You've got it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love it. All right. Well, I'm a whole wholeheartedly pound the table endorsing the 2002 Brazilian film City of God. I meant to see it when it came out or, or near the time that it came out. And for some reason, it sort of disappeared from consciousness until I was flying overnight, couldn't sleep. And uh, it happened to be one of the movies they had on unedited, uh, the entire thing. Uh, I finally saw it. It is a masterpiece. Oh my God. It's, it's a crime, epic crime story in one of the um, Rio de Janeiro, taking place in one of the Rio slums. Uh, it arcs over several decades. It has a highly original storytelling style. It's visually arresting, uh, incredible acting. It is just, uh, anyone seen it, City of God? Yeah, that movie's fucking great. Yeah, it's it's just an unreal achievement. I, I, I uh, hope people, if you have seen it, please email me and tell me I'm right. If you haven't, please watch it and uh, uh, you know affirm for me that it's just a revelation. It's a, It's a tremendous movie. All right. Well, Heather, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, really, really good show. Dan, uh, always a pleasure. And uh, I'm sure you'll come back soon. I'll see you soon, I'm sure. Excellent. Uh, you'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. We do love getting emails. I really mean it. We try to respond. Our uh, intro music is by the composer Nicholas Bertel. Our production assistant is Nadira Goff. Our producer is Cameron Drews. For Heather Schwedell and Dan Coyce, I'm Steve Metcalf. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.